Hello there and welcome. These are Tales of the Revolution with Jason Vreeke. That's me, your fellow revolutionary. We share stories to draw people closer to the real Jesus of Nazareth. This episode is entitled, Coming Home. Our first storyteller spent years looking for home, until finally, home found her. Her name is Darlene Pollock, and her story, well, it's revolutionary. You'll see why right now. My mom grew up in a typical post-World War II home where their father was very authoritarian and her mom was actually abused. And so she was kind of at a, a little bit of a disadvantage that way. But when she was 15 years old, she was brutally raped by a, a young man from the neighborhood. And he told her he ruined her and that he should marry her because she was now ruined and no one else would want her. And so she believed him. And when she found out she was pregnant with me, she did marry him. And at that time, she said, well, I figured we were in it together. There wasn't any getting away from him, and I didn't have any place to go. That resonated with me when she told me that and really directed the course of my life. She stayed with him for two brutal years. He beat her just all the time. And he was dodging the draft at the time. So when he was home, she was always on edge, not knowing when he was going to attack her. But when he was away, it was very similar in that she didn't know when he was going to come home because he was, it was very covert all the time. And so two years, she got pregnant again, and she just called her mom and said, I'm going to commit suicide if you don't get me out of here. I can't live this way anymore. I can't do this. And so her mom took her in, and she had her second baby. And at that time... You know, she had a lot of issues of her own. You know, the the rape, keeping secrets, the whole event in that time period left her with a lot of, um, you know, not unsure of herself, all that sort of thing. So my sister and I were given to my paternal grandmother. She didn't know that he was abusing us. And I, and I believe her 100%. You know, people will say to me, aren't you giving her too much slack? And I... I just say no, I, I really, I don't think I'm giving her too much slack. It was unfathomable, the things that he did. It's completely unspeakable things. And we were toddlers, we were little. Uh, but the biggest thing was that she just couldn't imagine that, she, that he would do that to children, that he would abuse children. But my grandmother and my aunt were complicit in his crime. My grandmother would dress us up in frilly little clothing that did not belong to us. Little patent leather shoes and lacy stockings and the little baby doll outfits that, that we didn't own. We were very poor. We didn't have anything like that. But she would present us to him as some kind of a gift. It, it was very twisted. And at that time, of course, we had no idea what was going to be going on or whatever. But I had so been taught to keep secrets. In other words, they, my grandmother and my aunt taught us how to keep secrets, and we were threatened all the time, that I would put everything that happened out of my mind. And I put it out of my mind so far that I never spoke of it. I never said anything. And my, even my little sister, who was also abused, would look at me like I had four heads. You know, she didn't understand why I didn't say anything. And I didn't, again, realize exactly what was happening, but it was a coping mechanism called repression. And I would put it so far out of my mind that I just wouldn't even think about it again. And when I got older, I started acting out, being violent, you know, doing similar behaviors. 
that kind of thing, not realizing what had gone on. Had a lot of nightmares. My mom had various relationships. Well, she married another uh, man, and they had their own issues, obviously. But at that time, I was, you know, five, six, seven, eight, nine, and I had I would have nightmares. But I was living this completely double life. At uh, my paternal grandmother's, I would be, you know, silenced and and abused and all this other stuff. And so I would go away from there and just put it out of my mind. And I lived another life with my stepfather's family. And we went to school and we did normal things like normal children. We had normal consequences for normal behaviors. On the flip side of that, there was also this aggression and this fighting that would happen that I believe was a step further than normal. And it was one of the signs that my mom missed. Like she didn't, she says, looking back now, I can see you would come back and you would be angry and you would be fighting with your stepsisters or whatever. She just thought that was normal antagonism between step siblings, you know, and it wasn't something that she recognized. At any rate, she divorced him and um, we were living in a very poor community in northern Massachusetts. And it was the early 80s, so it was the recession and Again, it was a very poor town. We had nothing. We had people, family members coming and going all the time. And we had people stay with us for months at a time. And one of my uncles molested me when I was 13. And that sort of set off a spiral of really bad behavior. I started doing drugs. I started committing crimes, running away, all that sort of thing. And I was old enough at that point to say no to going to my paternal grandmother's house. And we didn't have much contact with the step family at all. Very, very little. My baby sister did because she went there, but I didn't. So I was hanging around in those days, maybe skipping school, maybe after school. But a very handsome man came to my neighborhood. He was a bodybuilder from the area. He had a black Cadillac with red interior. And he just pretended to... And I say pretended because I don't believe it now, but he would say that he was looking for one of his friends in the neighborhood and had I seen them and he was supposed to be there and he'd just moved there and that sort of thing. The rest of the kids in the neighborhood and I would just hang out with this guy because he was really cool. You know, he's a bodybuilder and he was very fun and very energetic and um, we would talk about just current events and just really nothing things. But after a while, because it is New England... It wasn't long before it started to get cold outside, and so I would sit in his car with him to chat. And some of my friends sometimes would too, but when, when I was alone with him, he would make innuendo and start, you know, talking to me about about sexual things or whatever. And pretty soon, it wasn't just that I was in his car, but then I went home with him and I was in his bed. And it wasn't too long after that that uh, when winter was setting in, and my birthday's in the middle of winter, and um, my mom and I had been fighting. You know, we were at odds all the time. On my birthday, my 14th birthday, she came home from running some errands. And I told her, well, it's my birthday. And even though I probably shouldn't have, I felt like I was entitled to something for my birthday. And she threw two crumpled up dollar bills on the table. And I was just devastated. I mean, I knew we were fighting and everything, but I still felt like I should get something for my birthday. And... At that time, this man who had, had been with was had been talking to me about making making money. We didn't have an advantage. We didn't have proper footwear, no boots on my feet or anything. So when he, you know, he said, "You can have whatever you want. You can have anything you need, anything you want." And he never asked me for my number. He only gave me his number. 
so that day I called him. And within an hour or so, I was standing out on the street, on the corner in front of the drugstore, in two inches of slush, you know, up to my ankles, just standing there freezing, thinking, I bet nobody can even see me here. I bet nobody even knows I'm here. Nobody can see me. I felt invisible. And anyway, I got into his car, and that was the first time he sold me to a small businessman from southern New Hampshire. And throughout the next four years, I was sold into what is now called human trafficking. It was a long time ago, and they didn't have a word for it then. But it was four years of running away and being arrested and living on the street and being brutalized horrifically. I had various tents at various times. I summed across the country. I attempted suicide a couple of times. I had gone into foster care a few times. I was in lockup. Not long, just sort of overnight. And in all of that time, I had one social worker that I got along with, and her name was Nancy. And um, she was called a key tracker. She was a runaway social worker, a social worker for runaways. And during this time that I was on the street, basically, I mean, I was home a little bit, but very rarely. I lived with people from every walk of life, and my buyers were people from every walk of life. So I had buyers that were city councilmen, police detectives, small businessmen, all, all kinds of people, painters. And various times there would be a man who would say, hey, I'll rescue you from this life, you know, I could marry you or whatever. And of course, I thought that was ridiculous. I didn't think anybody would ever marry me, and if they did, it was just to keep me in the closet so that they could go out and buy more prostitutes. So it didn't make any sense to me. All my life, I felt that I was worth less than other people. I was not valuable as a person. I was only to be used and abused. That's what I had known growing up. That's what I knew, even at that time. And then finally, I was 17 years old. And I was sold to one man as a house pet. And see, he had been one of my buyers, but now he was going to be the only person that I would serve. He put me in an apartment, and the apartment was rented in the name of a sheriff in that small city that we were in. And I knew that he had lots of ties to the underworld, you know, illegal gambling, for example. He was a Shylock, so he would sometimes come with somebody's mortgage that was signed over to him because the person owed him so much money. He literally took his house away. He would come with thousands and thousands of dollars. I remember, you know, having $14,000, $15,000 in cash, you know, sitting on my bedside table or whatever um, on the kitchen counter. Uh, he took me to dinners down in Boston frequently. We went to the north end of Boston. It was very common to go to Chinatown down in Boston. We, we didn't go locally, but we went down there. And I was there for four months. And during that time, he said that if I ever got pregnant, that I would have to have an abortion. It had been five years of being very promiscuous, and I, and I use that term loosely. Obviously, when I was being sold, it was not, sometimes it was forced, and sometimes I thought I was making a decision to do it. It was obviously manipulation at that age, but I just thought it couldn't happen. And sure enough, I got pregnant. And when I got pregnant, he looked at me like I was crazy when I said, no, I, I don't want to have an abortion. And he said, oh, no, no, you're having an abortion. I want no life. And he slammed his fist on that arm of that couch, and it went through me like like a wave. Like, it shot through me, and it shook me to my very core. And, of course, I, I was trapped and knew that there was no way out for me. So I made the appointment in his presence, and I 
somehow fell asleep that night. I, I just cried myself to sleep. And I had a dream of the abortion procedure in living color. In my dream, I could see a little face. It was, it was all red, but I could, I could see a little face sort of floating, a, a little hand and a little ribcage. And I just, I woke up from that dream in shock, literally in shock. And I threw my hands up in the air and I said, God, if you're real, if you're real, I need you to show up here. I remember hearing about God in church when I was little. I had gone to um, tent meetings during the time when I was a teenager and runaway. You know, they served coffee and donuts and things. And so they had a lot of Salvation Army outdoor tent meetings. And we'd go to those. So I heard about God. And I know that I had uh, received salvation as a child with Ben Kinchwell and Pat Robertson on the TV. I would sneak late at night and watch them. So I knew that there was a God. And I had accepted him, but I didn't know anything about following him. I didn't really know about how to get in the right way, if you can call it that, of how to live in the light of the gospel. And so at that point, throwing my hands up in the air, I just said, if you are real, I need you to show up. I need you to show up right now. And I remembered that key tracker that I had mentioned. And so I found the phone number to the Department of Health and Human Services, and I called them. She didn't work there anymore. I was devastated, but the woman on the phone said, let me see if I can get in touch with her. I'll see if I can find her. And within an hour, Nancy called me back. And she was local, so we got together, and she and I devised a plan because I knew I couldn't just run away. She found a home for good mothers for me, which wasn't an established home like you have today. It was just somebody's basement with a couple of rooms in it. And she just opened her house up and said, if girls need, they can come here. And so I met with my mom on my 18th birthday. This was the day before my appointment was supposed to have been scheduled. And I said, Mom, I'm pregnant, uh, but it's okay. I've got a place to stay. You don't have to worry about me. You don't have to worry about a thing. I'm going to be away for a while, though, and I'm not going to contact anybody around here. And that next day, I went to my supposed appointment, but I went out with Anthony. We had lunch together, and we made arrangements for my staff to be taken care of. That night, I had to go out to dinner with my buyer, and I was very terrified that he was going to find out, but I didn't feel like I had any options. If I ran away, I felt that he would have the ability to find me by using police channels. And if I ran away you know, outside of the normal channel, quote-unquote, where I would get help from real people and did it covertly that he would find me in the underworld. So I went out to dinner with him that night. And when he came into the apartment, I was crying and shaking. And my stomach was turning. And um, I went out to dinner with him. And we went down to Boston. We went to Chinatown. So it was an hour drive. And all the way down, I told him, you know, I just can't do this anymore. I can't, something happened to me on the table. And all the emotions from the dream were like rushing forward as I'm talking to him. And I could just feel it. But also the emotions that, that he's going to kill me if he finds out. And I really thought, I was so afraid he was going to check. That he was going to find out. So that I was, you know, really shaking and very, very upset. But he had told me previously about making other girls have abortions. So I kind of knew that this was the way it happened, that he was going to know that I wouldn't want to be with him anymore because the other girls didn't want to be with him afterwards. He didn't say anything to me all the way down to Boston. And we went, we had dinner. I really didn't eat anything. I just pushed the food around on my plate. 
But on the way home, he said, all right, I'm going to let you go. But if you come back to this city, you're mine. So he let me go. He let me go. I was free. I went down to the home for unwed mothers and I kind of hid out for a bunch of months. And then I, I came back to the area to be with my grandmother and my mom to have the baby. And I told God, if she's, if she's good, if she's perfect, because I took a lot of drugs, you know, especially that night. He had given me the big red painkillers that night that we went out to dinner. And, of course, I had to swallow them because he was going to know if I didn't. I said, God, if she's all right, I'm going to bring her and any other children you give me up in the fear and admonition of the Lord. Because I didn't know those words, but that was the gist of it. And she came out perfect. It was very horrible, but the labor and everything, I, I wasn't under good care because I was on welfare and I was the lowest of the low, as I still say. But at that point, I found that there were really genuinely good people in the world, that people would actually open their home to strangers. Like, this woman didn't know me from Adam, and she let me live with her, helped me to get um, assistance. She took us to churches that helped give us food and money and helped pay the bills for us. And I just was floored by that. I had met my husband through a very unusual circumstance, which is a whole other story for another time. But when I first got out of the life of trafficking, I started learning how to change my mind, use memory verses to correct my own behavior, and be very, very careful about the things that I said and done. Now, that's not to say it was easy or that I didn't have issues, but I believe that everyone can do it. Anyone can use the Word of God to change their life as radically as it changed mine. Every single person on the face of the earth can do it. It was a matter of being diligent to use His words to change my life. Again, I've been married now for 27 years. I was a nurse for 26 years. I only left my job last year because of an illness. But I've been volunteering in pro-life work for almost 25 years. I was on the board of the small nonprofit here, the Right to Life here in New Hampshire. And I now am the vice president of a national Right to Life organization called Chase the One. God has done such a work in my life. I live with peace. I reach people all over the country, and I believe that everybody can do the same thing. No matter where you are, no matter where you're from, no matter how hard your circumstances, if you are, as I say, the lowest of the low, somebody who feels like a throwaway person, it's not true. There are no throwaway people. God can redeem your life the way He redeemed my life and bring you from the uttermost to the uttermost because He's good, He's faithful in all things. And I want to thank you, Jason, for the opportunity to share my story with people. I really hope that someone hearing it will realize that it does not matter where you're coming from. If you're still breathing, there's still hope and there's still a chance for you to live in grace and peace. Thank you, Darlene Pollock, for sharing your story. You can learn more about her at her website, thedarlingprincess.com. She is also Vice President of Save the One, a national pro-life organization. Find out more about them at savetheone.com. That's the number one, savetheone.com. Darlene found her way home to Jesus. But our next story comes from a couple, Quentin and Sarah Forbes. 
All they wanted was not to find their home, but to find someone they could bring home. You'll see what I mean as the Coming Home episode continues. We had found out in May of last year that we would need to either do IVF or adoption, and we just kind of were in a holding pattern waiting to find out which way we'd go because neither one of us really knew which way we wanted to go. And so we waited, we got information about adoption, got information about IVF, and then at the end of September, I really was convicted through God working through just different experiences and stuff that we were going to move forward with adoption. But at the time, Quentin was not as convinced. A few months went by and kept waiting. And we just, at that point, our prayer changed to God just put us on the same page because we were definitely not on the same page. I was very much, I don't want to do IVF. I want to adopt. And Quentin was very, I don't want to adopt. I want to do IVF. And and, and the one thing that, you know, throughout that process that was important to us and and that decision was the support of our, our life group at our church. We had them, you know, praying for us throughout that process of seeking IVF and, and that process of infertility. That kind of got us thinking on the same page as far as what we were wanting to do or what we thought we wanted to do. But obviously that started to change when Sarah was led to, to kind of go through the adoption process and then and kind of adopt a, a little baby into our life. But uh, I wasn't I wasn't quite there yet. And so then at the beginning of December, Quentin told me, he said, you know, yes, let's go forward with adoption. And so we had already met with a few adoption agencies in North Carolina and met with a consultant that works nationwide and just to get information on how they work and how they're different. And we decided, he told me at the beginning of December that he was ready to adopt. So we started the process and through just meeting the different agencies, we had decided to go with a consultant because we thought the consultant would work better with what we were looking for. We were looking for just a really smooth process and a very open process as far as having control over it because we really felt that they allowed us the opportunity to look at each case individually and make our choice as a family on whether or not we wanted our profile shown. And that was the flexibility that we didn't feel like we had with agencies that we interviewed in North Carolina. So we started the process in December. Our profile book went active which is like it started being shown to birth mothers in February. And then we just kept waiting and kept waiting and waiting. And then in May, we, on our wedding anniversary, I was in chapel at school and I look and it's a phone call from our consultant and she never calls unless there's like an issue. And so she called me, I stepped outside and I called her back and she told me, there's a baby for you guys and it's in Florida. And I'm crying. So I leave work because the deal was whoever found out would go and tell the other person, like, leave and drop whatever you're doing and go tell the other person that we were going to have this little baby boy in a few weeks. And that started our process of working with our first mother. And when we started working with her, we met 
over FaceTime and started talking and she started sharing a little bit of her story and we realized that the whole time her story by itself was kind of unremarkable and then our story by itself was kind of unremarkable. But you put them together and you realize God began knitting together our son the week I was ready to adopt. And then the first week she went to the adoption agency was the week Quentin was ready to adopt. Because she kind of shared with us like her timeline. And after we started doing that, we just were just floored because God had put together our timelines just perfectly. And then earlier in the year, my dad had passed away. And he had been adopted when he was a baby. And that was 70 years before this year. So we get a call early June that baby was coming. So we packed everything up, left and drove to Florida and found out it was a false alarm. But we decided to go ahead and stay because Clinton had a coworker that had moved to Florida and he and his coworker reconnected. So, I mean, that's something that uh, as far as just God working in the in the details, not... So many, so many times people say, you know, they can hear God speaking to them. They can hear uh, God moving in, in different ways. Well, it really shows unexpectedly, you know, we kind of found ourselves noticing that, you know, this is God's plan. This is nearly not our plan. So, you know, we had the, uh, the timeline coincidence of you know, Sarah being ready. God knows us from the beginning, knitting us together, knows the hairs on our head. And uh, it's just crazy how a, uh, a co-worker, a fellow believer, just so happens to be in the exact same location where Braxton's being born. It's just amazing that also, not to have that as a coincidence, but they had just bought a house there, which was an amazing coincidence. And also the apartment that they were living in, uh, they happened to have the lease uh, going through June and it was vacant and paid for. Uh, so we were able to be able to have that safe haven and be able to wait even though that, you know, fossil alarm brought us there early. But the uh, the details that uh, that laid in that trip there early is something that we're, we're actually very happy that happened because we got to meet Rax's birth mother and kind of get uh, some connection there with her, share our faith and as well as just get to know her a little bit and let her uh, get to know us a little bit. And then we were down there for 11 days before she went into active labor. And we get the call. She's in active labor. They've admitted her to the hospital. Go ahead and make your way to the hospital whenever you can. And one thing we learned when we were spending time with our birth mom was it was so important for her to have a couple that wanted to be at the hospital, wanted to have the baby with them right away, because she viewed what she was doing as a way to give a family who didn't have any children, like the whole hospital experience. And one thing that people ask why we chose to adopt a newborn versus fostering or adopting an older child. And God just wouldn't let us let go of the hospital dream. And that was just something that we really, really wanted. And it was really important to us. But then to find out it was just as important to her was really a nice addition. So she's in labor, we're at the hospital, we're in and out of her room visiting with her and her family that have come to check in on her and we're just waiting and 
uh, his biological grandma comes out and tells us that he was just born and he was born late on the evening of June 15th, which is my dad's birthday. So it was really great that his birthday is shared with my dad's birthday because my dad, when he passed away, there was a lot of uncertainty. There was a lot of unanswered questions and a lot of questions on like, God, where were you in all this? I know you had it, but was this really like how this was supposed to happen? And just for that timing and that gift of having them share a birthday was amazing. And that's an awesome, amazing gift. And one thing, Quentin, I remember today was... um. My aunt had sent us an anniversary gift at the end of April. So our wedding anniversary is May 12th, but the gift arrived end of April sometime. And um, so we were holding on to it. And my husband is super strict. You open a present on the day you're celebrating whatever it is. So Christmas, birthdays, anything, you open it on that day. And I kept asking, can we please open it? Can we please open it? Can we please open it? And he said, no, I don't want to open it. So our wedding anniversary comes May 12th, morning of. We wake up, and I'm like, all right, Clinton, let's open it right now. And he said, no, Sarah, I want to have something to look forward to when we come home. Let's open it tonight. So defeatedly, I say, all right, fine, we'll open it tonight. And then all the excitement happens during the day. Find out about Braxton. We see each other at work. We go out to lunch. We are celebrating. We're so excited. We've totally forgot about this gift from my aunt. And when we open it, it's a willow tree figurine of a mom and a dad and a baby with a note saying, so excited for your all's adoption process. Can't wait to hear about this baby, wherever he or she may be. And so this gift that we've been holding on to for close to three weeks, unopened, just waiting, and we got to open it right after we found out about our son. Thank you so much to Quentin and Sarah Forbes. If you listened closely, you may have heard their baby boy Braxton in the background. Please keep them in your prayers. Well, we're here again. The end of another episode of Tales of the Revolution with Jason Vreeke. But wait, there's more. More revolutionary storytelling at talesoftherevolution.com. Subscribe to the podcast on iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play Music, and anywhere you get podcasts. When you're at TalesOfTheRevolution.com, be sure to sign up for email updates. If you do, you'll get a free download of exclusive content found nowhere else. I promise you that. Follow us on social media, Facebook.com slash TalesOfTheRevolution, on Instagram at RealJasonVreeke and on Twitter, at Jason Vreeke. That's V-R-E-E-K-E. Thank you for listening to Tales of the Revolution with Jason Vreeke. This episode was entitled, Coming Home. Until next time, live the revolution. <laughs>